What a fitting song, choir. Thank you so much for that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Uh, that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And if you're looking at your pew Bible there, you can find the page 1349. And as we like to say, if you do not have a copy of your God's Word, of God's Word, consider that yours and take it with you and uh, read that, make it your own today. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word from us here at First Baptist Church. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And as is our tradition here, we'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can be seated this morning. The title of the sermon today is, The Humility of Christ Unites Us. We'll look next week how the humility of Christ saves us. Uh, but this morning, the humility of Christ unites us. And we're going to explore this passage this morning for, one, the conditions for unity. Uh, that is, how do we know when we're ripe for unity? Simple answer is we always should be. Uh, secondly, the call for unity. What is it that we're supposed to do? Thirdly, the cause. How do we do it? And finally, the catalyst for unity. That is, what is the motivation? Why are we even doing this? Before we dive into that this morning, let's bow in prayer. Father, we are grateful to be here, grateful to hear your word. Uh, Lord, if nothing else, the reading of your word has gone forth in power today. Uh, and I pray that it would do that which it's designed to do, which is change hearts, convict, encourage, lift up, make you great, make us small. And we pray that it does that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the conditions for unity this morning. So in verse 1, Paul uses an if-then kind of construction there. Those of you grammar buffs, that's pretty easy to see. Those of you who are not grammar buffs, that's also easy to see. When the big giant word if is at the front, that's an if-then statement. So, but, but Paul is not using it in the same way we often use the word if, which is to say maybe. Uh, he's not using it to cast doubt on his premise, but to prove it. In other words, he's not wondering if the Philippians have these conditions. He's essentially saying, since you do, and I want to say those same things to us here today, to you. I want to echo Paul's statements to you today. You know, this is a four-point sermon, really, Matt, one-point sermon, three sub-points. But for you all out there, it's going to feel like a thousand-point sermon. I have to say that. Uh, good or bad, but I want you to, there's going to be so much application because the text is rich. I'm going to take opportunity to do most of the application that I can, so I want you to glean what you can from it. 
And I want you to think about yourself a lot. I want you to hear these words in your own heart. And I want you to hear me saying this morning, as we talk about the conditions for unity, I think they're ripe here. I think we're ripe for unity. And I want to say to you, friend, do you not have encouragement in Christ? Don't you? You do. You know, the Philippians were facing, as we know from chapter 1, some of the very same conflicts as the Apostle Paul. Things like imprisonment, persecution for the sake of Christ. But they found encouragement in Christ. And so can you. Not many of us in here are going to be thrown in jail for our beliefs. Lord willing. But many of us will face struggles. I will go ahead and say probably all of us face difficulties. The looming loss of a job or family issues. The dwindling health of yourself or a loved one. And you can find encouragement in Jesus Christ at all times and in any situation. Haven't you felt His comfort? Haven't you felt His encouragement? Haven't you not felt in comfort from love? This is what Paul says, have you not felt this comfort from love? You know, this seems like a simple phrase, but I have to say it kind of stumped me. Because I don't know what the object is. Who is loving who? And I thought, does he mean Jesus' love? I mean, that makes sense, right? You felt comfort from Jesus' love? Or is he saying my love? You felt comforted because I love you. But I've actually come to believe that Paul is speaking about the love the Philippians have. For Christ, for Him, for one another. There is a sweet comfort in having an object of affection, is there not? There is something rewarding about loving someone. There is probably no happier people on the earth, maybe, than newlyweds. We've got this new relationship We have the object of our love in front of us, except maybe new parents. (laughs) New parents. There's something sweet about that, that new baby. Well, maybe grandbabies, right? Am I right, grandparents? So maybe we can one of it. There's nothing sweeter than that, we'll say. But there is a comfort in love. The world and the problems melt away when you focus on your love for one another. Have you not felt that? And I know you have. We have these conditions. Are you not filled with the same Holy Spirit as the other members of Christ's church? There's a word here in the text that says participation. In the original, that's the word koinonia. Now maybe that's familiar to you Greek lovers, or maybe if you have Googled cool Christian coffee shop names, that's probably come up there as well. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a heavy word in Greek. It means a lot of things kind of smashed together. Fellowship is sort of what it means. Participa- participation, cooperation. It's the idea of us locking arms together joyfully. And we are working together in the mutual influence of the Holy Spirit. Are we not? I would say that we are. The same Holy Spirit that indwells me indwells you and you and you. The exact same Spirit, not a similar Spirit. The same Spirit. We are one in the Spirit. Can you not muster any affection or sympathy for the brothers and sisters in Christ? I know that you can. 
If you're reading the King James here, the word says bowels. That's, a, that's a, maybe a little disconcerting word here. You might be like, what in the world? If you think about it, though, we use the same exact thoughts today, don't we? Man, he's got a lot of guts going into that two-year-old classroom. <laughs> she loves him with all her heart. So you see, the idea persists today that the seat of emotion and passion is somewhere in the ventral body cavity. For those of you whose wife is not studying for nurse practitioner boards, that's this <laughs> right here. But there is a deep care for the family of God inside you. I know there is. You know there is. We meet the conditions for unity. And Paul says, since you do, since you meet these conditions, and I know that you do, be united, pursue unity in the body. Which is our second point, the call for unity. It's a simple command, really. I don't know if you like sports or not, but regardless of how you feel, I can't help but notice, and maybe you have too, there's a striking similarity between team sports and the church. Uh, There's things... The, the themes that overlap, themes like working together, uh, things like listening to your coach, being on the same plan, disciplining ourselves. One of my favorite sports to watch is football. Do y'all watch football? Probably not anymore. No, it's probably. But anyway, yes, we do. Uh, a lot of us do. And if you don't, that's okay. If you don't like sports analogies, this is not the sermon for you today. Sorry. Uh, but, but there's a phrase I hear over and over again. Whenever I watch or you hear a game, and they'll say, the commentator will say something like this, that was a busted play. That was a busted play. Now, what is he talking about? And if you know what he's talking about, you already track it with me. If you don't, what exactly is a busted play? I'll tell you, most often, it's when one player runs a different play than everybody else. That's busted. The quarterback has a ball, and he hands it off to the left. And the running back is to the right, you know. Or the defensive back thinks, I'm guarding this guy, when really he's supposed to be guarding that guy. And it's a busted play. Usually big plays, momentum swings, sometimes game winners or losers. They all come down to one thing. Not everybody on the team is on the same play. They're not of one mind. They're not united. They're not in full accord. Paul tells the Philippians, be of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. These ideas are very nearly synonymous, but they they each say something different about unity. First, being of the same mind, it implies harmony of opinions or sentiments. That is, that we all think alike, we all agree together. Now, I've mentioned the original Greek manuscripts a few times, and here it's particularly interesting because there is an exemption for Southeastern Conference football teams in the original Greek. It's unbelievable. I I had to check my commentary. You know I'm joking, right, of course. But there are exceptions here, of course. It doesn't mean we all agree on every last thing. Our opinions are identical. But what it means is we don't let our opinions cause divisions. We agree on the important things and we agree on spiritual matters and we agree on uh, the things that matter. We're all pulling in the same direction. Uh, It doesn't help all the church is pulling this way and a faction is pulling the other. Um, 
also of the same love. In verse 1, they were comforted from love. Now Paul calls us all to a common affection. What is the same love they all have? It's the same love that we all have here today. Every single one of us here today, you and you and you and me, we're all here for the same reason. It is because we all love Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. That is our goal in this life. And that is the only reason we're here. That is the only thing that could pull all of us from all different places and walks of life and ages together in the same room. It's the same love. I had a friend in high school whose parents were part of a trail climbing club. I didn't even know there was such a thing. But, but it was a group of people that got together to, to climb trails with their jeeps, essentially. And they had some weird friends. I'm telling you, some weird friends. These people were conservative, typical, you know. Uh, and they had some friends who were all out there, dirt poor, rich, conservative, liberals, you know, tattooed, clean haircut, different religious beliefs, political persuasions, you name it, there was differences there. As a matter of fact, I thought to myself, what is keeping these people from just a knockdown, drag out brawl every time they get together? But the answer was clear. If they would have been gathering for any other reason than their common love, they would have been at each other's throats. Their common love overcame all other differences. And you and I quite literally have something infinitely greater than that. Infinitely greater than anything this entire world could provide to congregate around. We have a common love that unites us all. Being in full accord. You could say even same spirited maybe. This word carries the idea of co-spirited. It's really actually very similar to the idea that's floating around a pop culture of the soulmate. Right? She's my soulmate. I've never met her before. I've been chatting online. And I know she's my soulmate. Right? And that's kind of goofy. But, but in reality, you and I are actual soulmates. We are connected at the soul. We are co-spirited. We are Together as one organism moving in step with one another. With a single soul to guide us. Finally of one mind, simply intent on one purpose. One goal. So we are called to this sort of unity that is same-minded, same love, same spirit, same purpose. Why these exhortations to unity? I'll tell you why. Paul is kind of like standing on the precipice of a cliff, shouting a warning. He's like a lighthouse casting beams on the, the rocks out in front of the church, saying, whoa, watch out. The greatest stumbling block in front of the church, I believe, in Paul's day, our day, the greatest stumbling block that ever will be in front of the church is the church. And Paul knows that. Think back to your Sunday school days. What did, what did Peter and Jesus talk about a little bit later on in his ministry there? He said, Peter, I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of hell 
shall not prevail against her. Now, can you think of anything that is more powerful, more scary, stronger than the gates of hell? A government? Surely not. What is the only thing on this planet that is stronger than the gates of hell, Satan and his minions marching against us? There's only one thing, and that is the church. So you see, there's really only one powerful enough enemy, and it is the disunity, the division, the disharmony inside, within the church. And Paul knows this, and he is saying, you know, this is such an important deal to me. I can go to the executioner with a smile on my face as long as I know you are united. I've kind of hinted before, it doesn't mean that we all agree on everything, but that we don't let our disagreements become divisions. This is, this is the core of it. I think maybe we, sometimes we get frustrated because we think this means that we all have to get along and just enjoy the heck out of each other's company and, and just no crossword ever be said. Now, we all know that's going to happen from time to time. What it means is we don't let those things, those little tiny fissures become voids and caverns and divisions in the church. Hear me, church. Listen to this. A church that stands together is impenetrable. There is nothing that can penetrate the church that is together. It cannot be taken from the outside. The only way the walls of the church fall are from within. So yes, this is powerful. This is important. So naturally, we have to ask ourselves, well, why do we not always have this unity? What is it that keeps every single church at all times, from this kind of unity. If this is the only real enemy of the church, why don't we stand up against it all the time? And the answer is very simple. It's my pride. My selfishness. I say me because it is true. It is mine. But I think we all know it's also yours. It's ours. I want what I want. Leads us to the cause for, for, for unity in verses 3 through 4. How do we do this? How do we accomplish unity? We've seen that we, we're supposed to do it now. How do we make that happen? I remember going to see a young man play basketball one time when I was in high school. I went to a small school and, uh, you know, out in the country. And there was no real remarkable athletes on our team. Except for me, I mean... I was, whoo, if you'd have seen me. Why are y'all laughing at that? So we all thought, let's, let's load up, let's go see this big dog that's playing at the big school in town. He's being recruited by all the big major colleges, and man, he's supposed to be something else. Let's go see what a real basketball player looks like, and we all go to watch the game together, and we were all had the exact same responses. We saw a dunk or two, and we were like, Wow. And then we realized, this guy's kind of lazy. He's not playing any defense. He's just hanging out at half court, what we call in basketball, cherry picking, right? 
waiting on a lob pass so that he can get a dunk. He was, he was selfish. He was arrogant. He was looking out for himself. I don't need to tell you, that team never made it to the playoffs, and that young man, as far as I know, never made it in college. Paul has an answer for us here. He says, do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition, as the New American Standard says, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Paul knew the greatest source of contention and division in the church is selfishness. It's conceit. First we say, let's look at, what does it mean to do nothing from selfish ambition, rivalry, conceit? I'm going to pick on the choir for a minute. I want to sing that solo. That, man, she sounds like a dead cat screaming. I, can, I sing so much better than her. I should be teaching that class. He doesn't know anything about the Bible. He doesn't know his old from his New Testament. I should be the one doing that. I'm the best. I'm the most important. Look out for selfish ambition. Conceit. I want you to think. Does it, the question would arise quickly though. Does that mean, suppose I really am the best singer. Does that mean I shouldn't sing? Suppose I really am one of the best teachers. Should I not teach? Of course you should. That's not the point. The point is the word from. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's all about what motivates you. Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to serve on that committee? Why do you want to stand up in front of people and preach? Certainly not to prove that you're the best preacher. We're doing it because we want to serve others. Imagine a church where nobody ever did anything from a heart of, this is what I really deserve. I want this for myself. I doubt that there could be a division in a church like that. It would be extremely hard. One of the main problems, though, is that it's, nobody's ever selfish. You ever notice that? It's always the other person. They're the ones who are selfish. I'm, I just want to do what's best. Right, We have to be on the lookout for it. Also, conceit. Conceit, you know, conceit is sneaky. It can manifest itself in different ways. And one of those ways is hurt feelings. We look to ourselves and we think, what, has, what is it good for me? Nobody asked me. So I guess I just won't serve. Nobody said thank you last time. So see if I do that again. Do nothing. From selfish conceit or rivalry or conceit. But, verses 3 and following, in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. These two phrases really are synonymous in my view. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Church, if we could master just one thing, if we could master just this, it would revolutionize the church, probably the world. But instead, I think our sin here, our fault, is that we often do literally the exact opposite. We put ourselves in front of others. 
We come to church for what we can get for ourselves. We've, we've spiritualized this idea by saying, I'm coming to church to get fed. Right? Everybody needs to eat. Everybody needs food. What's wrong with getting fed? Uh, if you don't, you'll starve to death. I'm coming to get fed. And for me, getting fed looks like the songs I want to sing, sitting in the place I want to sit in, coming at this certain time, this certain building. Everything looks just like this for me to get fed. If not, I just wasn't fed today. And so we come into our little feeding troughs here to get fattened up spiritually so that we can sit around being spiritual. <laughs> what good does that do? You know, to, to think about uh, maybe not a great theologian, uh, but definitely a great speaker who once said something like this. Think, ask not what your, you, your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. Uh, and it's true. This is our attitude. It's great to have preferences. I Don't hear me saying you can't prefer something or else. I am a very opinionated person. Ask anybody that knows me. I have strong opinions um, about many, many things. So don't hear me say you can't have opinions. Uh, but the point of this is not to look at yourself. It is to look at others. That's the whole point Paul is saying. He's not saying uh, in, in this passage right here, now just be humble. What he's saying, count others more significant than yourself. Look to the interests of others. So I want to do that for you today. In a, not a weird way, I just want you all to stop and look around. And then it will stop. Just look around, look at people around. It's okay, y'all can look. Just look around. There's people around you, right? This is what the Bible calls others, Okay. So, those are the others. Think about something. What will make that person comfortable that you just looked at? What will help that person grow in Christ? How could we minister better as a church to that person? What are their desires, opinions, traditions, preferences? And by the way, I, I'm not just talking to one group of people. I've heard this topic broached before. Almost always, the older generation is victimized. Like, you just need to get in line, Grandma, because the drums are coming, right? You just, that's all there is to it. And you're holding up the way the gospel by your old traditions. But they're not the only ones with strong preferences. Younger folks look around and see. See the blessing we have here at First Baptist Church of elder saints in our congregation. Think to yourself, what would honor them? What would bless them? What would make them feel loved? See, this is for everyone, for all generations. New people, people who have been here for 30 years or longer. Believers, seekers, we're seeking to look out for the interests of others. Finally, we arrive at the beginning, really. The last point, the catalyst for unity in verse 5. Why do we do it? What is the point? At the end of the day, why should I even care about all this stuff? If you're on the playground, you might say, who's going to make me? All right? Why? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which, was, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm going to do something a little different today. I don't normally do. I'm going to diverge from the English Standard, which is my favorite translation. Uh, but as I was looking, the New American Standard, King James, NIV, HCSB, other translations um, have what I think is a, 
stronger translation here. And it makes it a more pointed application, which is something like this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I think that is the point that Paul has been making all along. I read an article about Ray Lewis. I don't know if you know who that is, but he was a linebacker for a few teams, most notably the Baltimore Ravens, voted recently in the NFL 100, one of the top 100 players of all time. He's a force. It was said that while he was at the Ravens, the coaches came to him for permission to change practice schedules and things like that. And they, they, before they ran a defensive scheme, they asked Ray what he thought about it. His teammates looked at him as the general, leading them into battle. It was said he was the smartest guy on the team. He was the most passionate, the hardest hit it, hitting, the fiercest, the undisputed leader of the team. One teammate described a bizarre pregame ritual where Ray Lewis went, at, went throughout the locker room and anointing his players, as Ryan Riddle called them, his disciples, with oil and blessing them for the battle. I mean, this dude was larger than life. But strangely, they say he was actually really quiet and humble. But nonetheless, Ray was that guy. He was that guy on the team. You love having that guy as a coach. That you can, you, you can look to these kids over here who aren't doing their job and you can say, do it like he does. That guy's one of the best players the NFL has ever seen. And he's respectful. He's hardworking. He, he comes to practice on time. He listens to coaching. Who are you that you can do something less than he does? Do it like him. You should be doing at least what he's doing. I don't need to tell you Jesus is no mere football player. He is the very Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. He's the creator of all that exists, the ruler over all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the Savior of His people, the shepherd of this very church and your Master, do it like he does. He was humble. <laughs> Boy, was he. He was selfless. You should have that mind in yourself. Jesus was more powerful than anyone around him, yet he was meek. He had more authority than anybody on earth, yet he came to serve Instead of demanding service. He was more righteous than anyone ever could be. Yet he stooped to love. Even eat dinner with a sinner. Even when he was reviled. Undeservingly he did not revile in return. And sometimes you and I act as if we are not the servants. But the royalty. Who deserves to have people serve us. We deserve to have things our way. Our opinions validated. Our wrongs avenged. See, Jesus was the exact opposite. He really was a king who acted as if he was a servant. This is the mind we ought to have in ourselves. And I tell you, when I sit and think about this, really meditate on Jesus' humility, it's kind of shameful. No, not kind of. It is shameful. It embarrasses me to the core. Worse than embarrasses me to think about my arrogance. I don't want you to think, 
Have you ever been dumbfounded by your own arrogance? Standing before God? Like an ant so proud of his ant hill out in front of the lawn of the Biltmore Estates? Look what I've done, God. Oh, friend, if Christ is humble, then you and I ought to be lower than humble, whatever that is. How do you measure up to his standard? Do you have the mind of Christ in you today? Church, we must sell the farm, do whatever it takes to gain and maintain unity. And in order to do that, we've got to look to our Savior as an example and adopt the mind of Christ today. I'm going to take a moment and speak to you today who may not be believers because I think the greatest arrogance of all is to stand before God and say, no, you know what, God, I got this. I don't really need you for this whole salvation thing. Or, maybe just as bad, I could use a little help. I got most of it, just this one thing here. Now you don't got any of it. You can't get any way down the road. My friend today, if that's you, I beg you, lay aside your pride and come humbly to Jesus in repentance and faith. Submit to your rightful master. He's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's your master. And if you can't get with that, then you're not coming in the right frame of mind. Be saved from your sins. Receive the glory of Christ. You know, I, I truly believe hell is going to be full of people who got their back slapped at church and told they were doing a great job because they did not come with humility before Christ. They were far from Him. The Apostle Paul elsewhere, he, he encourages us to kill our pride, mortify the flesh, he says. That's our job today as we go forward. This morning, we're going to offer an invitation in a moment, and as we sing, we're going to invite you to come forward today. If there's some issue you need to pray about, the altar is open here. If you want to learn what it means to be a member at First Baptist, we invite you to come and speak. Pastor Matt is going to be available down front this morning. If you need to hear more about what it means to trust Christ, we'd love to speak with you about that as well. Uh, this morning, I encourage those of you who are believers, uh, you don't have to all come forward. You can if you want, but you can stay right there in your pew. Uh, there's not a single person in this room that doesn't need to repent of our arrogance before Christ. I would encourage you to take an opportunity to do that today. After this prayer, won't you come? Let's pray together. Lord God, we are grateful that you have overcome the sin of our pride, overcome our arrogance to bring us the gospel and salvation despite ourselves. And it's so powerful that you had to humble yourself in order to do that. Who are we? Who are we? look around at the people around us and say I'm better than you you don't deserve my forgiveness I pray today that you would forge the unity that First Baptist Church needs to go forward Lord I, I know the conditions are ripe and I'm so thankful for that we are looking forward to that going forward Lord we pray today 
that your, your word would have changed us, helped us grow, challenged us, convicted us, and we would respond in repentance and faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.